Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Stephen Gundry, who has written a new book, uh, The Longevity Paradox, which has been out for a bit. Uh, I just had an opportunity to review it and uh, we're going to discuss that. You may know him from his previous book, The Plant Paradox, which is really a landmark book from the perspective of sharing information about really a foundational component of health, which is the damage that lectins can do to your health. And uh, he discusses that a bit in this book, of course, too. And we'll, we'll probably start out with that. But it really is probably, in my view, one of his biggest contributions to the health field is helping most of us understand this and the damage they can have to your health. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks. It's great to be back on your program. Yeah. So for those who uh, may not have seen our previous interviews, uh, why don't we, we start with the, the lectin issue because and how they affect, impact our gut buddies, as you refer to them, our beneficial bacteria. And uh, because you know, it really is a, a foundational topic that uh, we need to fully appreciate. Yeah, I think uh, the longer I've been at this and the more biological markers of inflammation that have become available from last few years, inflammatory cytokines, the more I've actually been impressed with uh, the harm that certain plant lectins are capable of doing. In fact, uh, just two weeks ago, I was up in Boston at the American Heart Association's vascular biology meeting, where I think I made a case that uh, dietary lectins are responsible for an autoimmune attack on the surface of our blood vessels as measured by a cytokine called IL-16, which basically pulls inflammatory cells to a site. And I showed in people that removing dietary lectins from them uh, would reverse dramatically a score that's now been validated for risk of acute coronary syndrome in the next five years called the PULSE score out of USC and showed that removing dietary lectins lowered the pulse score dramatically. And it did so by lessening IL-16 production. So um, I think the more I look at this, the more, again, impressed I am that lectins are a problem for us. And to probably answer your, your question, lectins are plant proteins. Um, they're present in all plants. They're present in all animals. But plants use lectins uh, to defend themselves against being eaten. Um, one of the hardest things I think most of us have to grapple with, plants who absolutely do not want to be eaten and try to prevent being eaten. On the other hand, is a way of distributing seeds. And that's... Uh, how plants, once again, uh, manipulate their predators to get what they want. Uh, and probably, eventually in this talk, we'll probably talk about the carnivore diet, but talk about the ultimate plant elimination diet. That's the carnivore diet. So you know, lectins are sticky proteins that are designed to bond to particular sugar molecules that line our gut, that line the spaces in our joints, 
that line the spaces between nerves, that line our blood vessels. And I and uh, definitely others uh, are convinced that uh, lectins uh, can contribute or a major cause of what we associate with the diseases of aging, such as arthritis, such as heart disease, such as neuropathy. And uh, there is pretty good increasing information that Parkinson's may be a lectin problem. We know that uh, several of the insecticides and herbicides can use lectins to climb the vagus nerve to the brain and go directly to the substantia nigra. So um, my humble opinion is that lectins should be uh, looked at seriously. Yeah, it really is one of the foundational recommendations that you have for the, in your book for longevity paradox is to make sure you're addressing that. And just to be specific, do you, is this a general recommendation for everyone because some people are more impacted by the lectins than others? Absolutely, there are differences in how people react to lectins. Uh, let me say that from the first off. So I can tell you absolutely positively when we get the major dietary lectins out of them and we simultaneously seal their gut wall and rebuild their gut microbiome, then 90% plus of these people go into remission for their autoimmune disease. And on the other hand, uh, is everybody sensitive then? I think if you have a decent, you know, diverse gut microbiome and an incredibly thick mucus layer on your gut, then you're going to be able to withstand uh, the onslaught of dietary lectins. And I think what's happened to us, like I've talked about in all my books in the last 50 years, as you and I both know, our microbiome has been devastated. Our gut wall permeability has been de devastated by NSAIDs, by glyphosate and Roundup, uh, in our proton pump inhibitors, changing the acid gradient in our gut. Uh, you name it, uh, we're sitting ducks for what otherwise, in other cultures, more primitive cultures, have learned how to handle through eons. Okay, another, thank you, another principle you outline in your book and for your recommendations is, and you've had this in other books, but you know, specifically focused on this one is that it's not so much what you eat, it's what you don't eat. And I think that's a pretty solid principle. I've used it a few times in my presentations, um, especially the processed foods and especially the ultra-refined oils. But, and I think you discussed that in your book. It's been a while since yep. I read it. Um, yep. But one of the things that I, I, I disagree with, and I'd like to dialogue about this, is the, what I believe is an unfair vilification of animal protein. So why don't you present your support for that, which is, I, I, is, appears to be based on the blue zone, blue zone uh, observations, uh, and uh, then we can dialogue about it. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in, in Omaha, Nebraska, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which are, you know, they don't call Nebraska the beef state for nothing. 
but I spent most of my career as a professor at Loma Linda University, which is obviously a blue zone, Loma Linda, California. And uh, I've become convinced looking at the diet of most of the blue zones. And in the longevity paradox, I've added what I consider two more, the Catavans in Papua New Guinea and the Achiroles. I think the unifying factor of all the blue zones is not that they eat grains and beans, but the unifying factor in all these areas is that they have limited amounts of animal protein. None of them completely avoid animal protein, uh, except the vegans, studied by Gary Murray, uh, sorry, Gary Frazier, the vegans have the longest long life of all the Adventists studied. And recently he's introduced a paper that shows that any addition of animal protein starts skewing them towards more heart disease. Uh, now, this is a study that's been ongoing in the Seventh-day Adventist community for a very long time. And I am not a vegan. I tend to eat uh, mostly vegan during the week, but my wife and I eat fish and shellfish on the weekends. Uh, I consider myself a vegetarian. So if I think I take care of a great number of vegans and vegetarians because of my experience at Loma Linda. And as we've talked before, some of the vegans that originally come to see me and vegetarians uh, are, are some of the illest people I, I deal with because in general, they're pasta and grains as I call them. And when we get these major lectin-containing foods away from them, um, they do better. But you know, animal protein, at least considering the blue zone, seems to be one of the unifying factors of the blue zones, uh, limited animal protein. Okay, and that's a position that's shared by many other people who uh, are advocating healthy nutritional changes. So you're certainly not a minority in that perspective. Uh, but I would counter this with the variables that aren't typically addressed when those recommendations are made, and, and I don't believe you did so in your book either, is the, there are two problems that can result from eating meat. And I, and I could, first of all, I couldn't agree more that I think eating meat, like most people do, is really a prescription for disaster. And what does that mean? It means that most people are eating far longer than 12 hours a day, 14, 16, sometimes 18 hours in a day they're eating. They're only not eating when they're sleeping. So that, and that's, I know this is not a practice you follow. You're a very rigid adherent of intermittent fasting. So I'm not criticizing you of that. But so though the, the observational studies you cite don't really integrate that into the equation. And the second is that most people who eat meat are not eating the whole animal like our ancestor did. In other words, nose to tail. And in the and why, why does that make a difference? I mean, just simplistically, it should. I mean, if you're eating the organs and the connective tissue, that should provide you some benefit. But specifically with longevity, it appears to be that the methionine excess seems to be problematic. Uh, but when you add connective tissue, one third of which is glycine, that methionine to glycine ratio improves quite dramatically and seems to diminish some of the pernicious effects of high doses of methionine. So I, I just, I'm not convinced that these recommendations to restrict animal proteins have been 
ideally addressed with these two variables, the integration of additional glycine, ideally through collagen or connective tissue. And, and then this also the adoption of the intermittent fasting. And in addition to that, periods of regular fasting where you're not eating for two days. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, one of the big points of the longevity paradox is, and you and I completely agree with this, we, we have to have periods of restricted calories at time interval, whether we call it intermittent fasting, whether we call it time-restricted fasting, whether we call it you know, pure uh, water fasting. I think you and I both agree that prolonged water fasting, unless you have a system for getting rid of those heavy metals, of chelating them or binding them with chlorella or activated charcoal, and getting your phase one and phase two liver enzymes activated as much as possible, then in our current modern environment, uh, prolonged water fasting is, is not the best way to go currently. Mm -hmm. I do agree with you that the case is very strong that glycine supplementation can make up for methionine restriction and most of your listeners uh, probably know that, that glycine addition to a normal diet will act almost as if you were methionine restricted. So I take glycine several times a day. And as you know and I know, uh, Roundup glyphosate uh, is almost identical to glycine. And one of its problems is probably the substitution for glycine. And I think the other reason to flood ourselves with glycine is to hopefully occupy those places that glyphosate could occupy. Well, additional what is that it seems to increase NADPH, which is one of my favorite biomolecules because it's uh, essentially the battery of the cell and recharges your antioxidants. So that's, that's the reason why I take a, a additional glycine. I know you take some yourself. What, what just, yeah. just, just a sidestep here, because we're going to your supplements at the end, but how much glycine are you taking a day and what's the dosage? Uh, I'm taking anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 a day. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I, th I wouldn't go much more than that. I think that's a, that's a good strategy. I take about two grams a day myself. Plus, I have collagen. So, uh, so getting, getting back to the animal protein argument. Yeah. Um, so I, my worry, first of all, Unless you know of one, there is not a long-lived society that's uh, carnivorous, at least that I know of one. So there's actually some exciting new evidence that uh, whales uh, can live uh, about 200 years of age, baleen-type whales. Uh, in fact, recently there was a... Uh, harpoon found from the mid-1800s uh, in a whale that was recently killed by um, uh, Alaskan native uh, fishermen. And uh, that's actually pretty doggone encouraging. So mm -hmm. uh, me, where I try to get my animal protein is primarily shellfish and mollusks. And, uh, and I take krill oil, like I'm sure you do. I take loads of krill oil. In fact, I take a krill oil phospholipid concentrate about 
half a teaspoon a day, which is just loaded with just good uh, phosphatidylcholine and serine and a lot of, a lot of good uh, fats like DHA and EPA. But I want to get back to this argument because you're still seeing patients. You're doing a, a number of tests on your patients, some of very sophisticated, pricey tests. So you'd be a good person to ask this. And I'm wondering if you, and I suspect most of your patients are also adopting your intermittent fasting approach and maybe even have integrated the, either the collagen or the glycine supplementation like you're following. And I'm wondering if you've observed any patterns in the testing that you're doing. Yeah, so one of the things that's been interesting for me, as you know, um, probably for 10 years now, I've been tracking uh, IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor in my patients. And uh, you know, I was impressed uh, by the St. Louis University study looking at their IGF-1s and also with a group of vegetarians that they follow. And the Calorie Restriction Society does quite well with IGF-1, which you would expect, but they were surprised that they weren't lower and they asked some of the CR um, society members to switch to a vegan diet of the same number of calories. And their insulin-like growth factors fell quite dramatically, sometimes 50 points. I've asked some of my patients to let us get a insulin-like growth factor baseline where they are, where they kind of run and then to dramatically uh, limit animal protein. And I haven't written the paper yet because I don't think I have enough data to do, get good statistics, but invariably their insulin-like growth factors fall as much as 50 points from their baseline. Uh, just this morning, uh, I saw a woman who's 70 years old who I asked her purposely for the next test to diminish her animal protein, and her insulin-like growth factor fell 30 points down to 160. She was impressed. I was impressed. Does that make a paper? No, that's an anecdote. But I, uh, I think there's something here. Well, was this woman or others you have asked to do this, were they, was she following a time-restricted eating window of six hours or less? And was she integrating periods of fasting? And was she using additional glycine? Great question. Uh, she skips breakfast uh, and had before. So, yeah, so she was doing an ex you know, a shortened feeding period. Uh, interesting, and I, I think probably, we're probably gonna actually agree on the same thing. I think if you have restricted feeding, and by that it almost means you're restricting calories, that I will say that you can get away with a higher protein diet simply because, compared to a normal human being. On the other hand, in my practice, uh, most people are not going to do that. They, uh, they, they will tell me I have a life. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going, you know, I'm going out for dinner. I'm going to socialize with friends. And come on, uh, let's be serious here. No, compliance is an issue. Yeah. So, uh, and 
we've we've had the occasion of, of interviewing guests who are doing the carnivore diet, but that carnivore diet is a ketogenic carnivore diet with intermittent fasting, with periods of you know true fasting and supplementation, nose to tail eating, and so we'll see. Okay, so I'm just curious, what do you find uh, to be the threshold for longevity benefits of the IGF-1 levels? So my super, and I define super old in my practice as 95 and above, who are thriving, who are active, who are not in a nursing home, who are walking their dog. And these people in general, uh, there are exceptions, but in general are running IGF-1 levels of 70 to 80. Okay. The other thing that's fascinating about these folks is they run low temperatures. Their temperatures are usually 95 and a half, 96. They're never normal. And they tend to run on the, the hypothyroid side of things, uh, particularly um, they tend to run low free T3s. And I, I, th I think that may be one of the secrets. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly we see in fasting, at least in myself, and certainly some of my other patients that I've asked them to do this, their, uh, their free T3s are low, but their TSHs are absolutely uh, normal, in fact, on the, on the perfect side of normal. Well, great. So one of the reasons you're concerned about IGF-1 as well you should be is that it tends to inhibit one of the most important metabolic processes we have, and a process that is inhibited in the vast majority of the population, probably between 80 and 90%, and some, most of these people never ever go into autophagy, it, which is the process, you know, the, the breakdown and the repair of the, of the cellular, subcellular parts. So when you elevate IGF-1, you're, you're actually going to activate mTOR, which is one of the reasons why you want to keep it low so that you can go into those regular cycles. Correct. So, I'm wondering if you've come to any conclusions, because this seems to be the, the leading edge now, is to figure out the timing of the cycling. And I think a lot has to do with the variables of the, the window that you're eating and then the, the other days that you're not eating. So again, sort of supporting your initial hypothesis, not so much what you eat, it's what you don't eat. And when you, and when you don't eat. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I think that um, is important, uh, Certainly circadian rhythms are probably lost on most of us in, in the modern world because of our sources for light and sources of food and availability of food. And you know, up until 100 years ago, uh, we had only light from you know, oil or gas lamps, which is nicely full of red light, doesn't have any blue light. We went through seasons of bright blue light in summer and none in winter. And food availability usually corresponded with light. And so the idea that we, every day, 365 days a year, should be eating in the same pattern doesn't make any evolutionary sense. And I'm convinced looking at our modern hunter-gatherers that still exist, that even their microbiome shifts on a seasonal basis as their food shifts. 
And I think this diversity and shifting of microbiome that I talk about in the longevity paradox may be one of those factors that's been lost in, in our modern diet. And it's fine to eat organic, it's grass-finished beef. But we didn't eat these things every day continuously for 365 days a year. So I think that's part of what's been lost in all of this argument is, and, and you and I, I think both agree on this, that most of us have no metabolic flexibility anymore, no ability to switch from glucose as, as our metabolism to ketones as our metabolism. And that's, you and I think, uh, We'll, we'll agree that that's one of our biggest problems. Yeah, and the artifact or the repercussions of that is that it will tend to inhibit autophagy. So yeah. let's get back to that because I think it's such a vital, powerful strategy if you hope to live to be 100 with full functionality and lack of frailty. So one of the strategies many people are using are polyphenols to activate and augment autophagy. Some of them examples would be quercetin or or um, resveratrol, erostilbene, yeah. EGCG. There's a whole wide variety of them, uh, fisetin. Uh, so I'm wondering what your thoughts are there and how you recommend and integrate them into your own protocol. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of using actually all of those polyphenols that you mentioned as uh, a way of, you know, stimulating uh, autophagy and being a calorie restriction mimetic, if, uh, if you want to call them that. And that's one of my arguments with, say, a carnivore diet, that these plant compounds uh, we would have eaten on a seasonal basis, not every day probably, uh, and we, I think, and I've written several papers on the effect, for instance, of grapeseed extract, pycnogenol, which is French maritime tree bark, on vascular flexibility and on PLA2 activity, which, for lack of a better word, is how sticky the inside of our blood vessels are to attracting oxidized cholesterol. And I've shown at the American Heart Association that adding these polyphenols actually improves vascular flexibility and stops stickiness. And removing these polyphenols actually stiffens blood vessels and makes blood vessels stickier. So in my own research, polyphenols do some amazing things and they should be in everyone's diet. So what is the, the key is the cycling, though. And I think, as you alluded to, taking them every day is probably a foolish strategy. So I'm wondering, wondering what uh, protocols you've developed to implement this cycling and what the windows look like. Well, I, I actually like windows that correspond to seasons. Um, as you know, I actually think that we should be eating fruit that's grown locally only during the summer and fall. And I think for most of us that we should limit our fruit intake during the winter and early spring. I realize you grapefruit and orange trees in your backyard uh, and you probably can't help yourself. 
but I don't think, even in the jungle, um, this was my research in college, great apes only gain weight once a year, and that's during fruit season. Mm-hmm. And that normal fruit does not ripen year-round, even in the jungle. Most of our fruit has been hybridized for sugar content. Uh, I mean, a, a honey crisp apple, for goodness sakes, um, just the word implies what you're looking forward to. So how long should you pulse them? Well, I tend to use a lot more polyphenols in in the summer and fall, and then I tend to back off on the winter. But having said that, I will track my PLA2s, my uh, vascular flexibility markers, and if I see them slipping, I'll actually add some of these back in. Um, So that's what I do. It's what I usually do with my patients, and... That's where we go from there. Well, I used to be a mTOR phobic and was really uh, afraid of eating too much protein and thought autophagy was the best thing since sliced bread. And I've grown wiser as I've uh, grown older and uh, disagree with that position now. So the that's why I'm a little more in favor of protein, especially animal protein, if you're working out a lot. And, and the... the you know, there's a number of experts who, who are pretty consistently agree that your re- requirements are, first of all, increasing two factors that many people watching this uh, have. One is that as you age, your, your, your requirements increase by about 25%. Then secondly, if you're engaging in serious exercise, and I'm not talking about running on marathons, though that would do it too, but mostly endurance, uh, resistance or strength training exercises, you're going to go up another 25%. So you know, those are two good reasons to have the protein and, you know, plant protein doesn't tend to work as well. I know some people would argue, but that's, that's my conclusion. But anyway, continuing on this track, the um, conclusion I reached, because I was taking these polyphenols all the time, not, not seasonally like you recommended, but I've come to the conclusion that it's probably best to taking when you're really activating autophagy, which is when you're fasting. So the days that I'm fasting and the day, the day, before I'm going to, or the day I'm going to eat, but you know, four or five, six hours into the day, I'll take autophagy activators. So I'll take them like maybe three, three, three cycles during a week. Uh, but you know, I really cut them down, and I, I'm not looking at these factors. I'm just from doing it from a theoretical perspective. But right. one of the the reasons can, that can I go can I go back and make a comment on something you just said? Sure. One of the things that's interesting: most people, uh, older people who come into the hospital have low serum albumin. Mm-hmm. A marker for low protein intake. Exactly. What I've found, and I, I argue this now with myself, the problem is that most adults have a destroyed gut wall and absorptive surface that when I change their diet and they're no longer destroying their gut wall, their albumins go up back up to normal, even though I'm restricting their animal protein. So I think we've got it all wrong. And this is part of the longevity paradox. I think our diet has been destroying the absorptive surface of our gut, which is, you know, a tennis court absorptive surface. And we can rebuild those microvilli by taking away, among other things, lectins, getting our mucus layer absorbed. The other thing I will argue with, they'll never have the muscle mass of a gorilla or a horse, and all they eat is leaves and grass. Um, We will never have that. So 
to say that we have to have animal protein to make muscle mass does not jive with the animal kingdom. Yeah, well, there's different reasons for that, that the gorillas have more muscle mass. That's a genetically determined issue. <laughs> but you, you and I would certainly agree that, that they can make muscle mass. Yeah, they can. There's no question. So I'm. What, that, I, thank okay. you for bringing up the point of the absorption capacity of the gut to absorb enough protein so uh, you can utilize it. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering if you're in your practice, if you're using any assays to measure that, like uh, your or urine organic acid test or other markers of SIBO, you know, to identify that other than uh, just a general blood work. Yeah. No. It, it just. It's fascinating watching serum albumins in these people who invariably have low serum albumins in their 70s or 80s, and then watching them over a course of about a year lowering their animal protein, which is part of what I do in my practice. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a very good point. Uh, and we know that albumin is important because it's a pretty good marker for longevity, too. If you're oh, yeah. in the dirt, you're not going to be living very long. That's true. And largely because it, it is a component of your immune system. You need protein to, to fight infections. And the older you get, the more important that becomes. Because elderly people in their 90s and 100s, the, the, the primary reason they die is really from infections. That's true. That's true. And you know, I think you bring up a good point uh, that maybe actually the strongest point for um, intermittent fasting. And that is you really, one of the best ways to regenerate your immune system and regenerate stem cells mm -hmm. in the immune system is this periodic uh, casting. It's one of the best ways to do it. And maybe that's one of the reasons that uh, we have so many infections and is the major cause of death the older we get is yeah. you're right our immune system just tanks um, yeah if we have if we want any hope over 120 we're gonna have to solve that issue there's no question that is a big big factor so but i want to get back to autophagy again the polyphenols because Last week, I interviewed uh, Dr. David Sinclair out of Harvard Medical School, and he's, he's a pretty prominent researcher in longevity. And we had a pretty significant discussion. His lab with uh, Lenny Garenti and MIT in the late 90s is actually the one that brought NAD to prominence because uh, NAD was discovered by Otto Warburg in the 30s. And we've known about it for a long time, you know, 80, 90 years. Uh, but it was Garenti's and Sinclair's research in the late 90s that connected the NAD to activating CERT1, one of the longevity proteins. And you could, you could take all these polyphenol activators till the cows come home, but unless you have enough NAD, it's not going to work. As simple as that. So you have to have NAD. And I was a bit surprised in your book that you really didn't give much print to NAD. You do mention it, but just a few sentences. And We'll talk about more because I think this is, in my view, an extensive review of the literature, I think this is one of the central cores of getting right. You have got to optimize your NAD levels, and, and I'm very grateful to Sinclair for doing his pioneering work and helping us understand this, and other researchers too, but certainly you know, Sinclair was very helpful in that perspective. So, And you do mention NAD pre precursors, but you talk about NADH, and that as a supplement, you recommend or take it 10 milligrams. And that seems to me clinically insignificant and, and really sort of paradoxical because the last thing you'd want to do, in my view, is to take NADH because 
that makes things worse. It doesn't make things better. You want to increase NAD plus, not NADH. So I'm wondering why you made that recommendation. Well, actually, I want people to take supplements that will increase uh, the production of NAD. And so, for instance, I like I think uh, NMM. Uh, sorry, spit it out. MMN and uh, nicotinamide riboside are very interesting compounds that. I've known David now, I think we were reminiscing for maybe 15 years, and I've followed his research back in the days of resveratrol. And I, I think David's research, uh, he's probably the genius in how all of these pathways come together, particularly with polyphenols and CERT1. And so I agree with you completely that something that can produce NAD um, is where at least if we want to follow that pathway for longevity, it's something that we should try to do. I think he would probably be the first to say that we, even he doesn't know if swallowing these things, putting them sublingual, is going to be the you know fountain of youth. Uh, I think the the results are just not there yet. Even the niagen trial with a thousand milligrams of nicotinamide riboside in humans only showed about an eight percent increase in lymphocytes in, of of NAD. And that's a thousand milligrams a day, um, which is pricey. So I don't know. Uh, do I think that's a, a, still a good idea? Well, yeah, I really respect David Sinclair's work. Um, and well, I think I think the issue is broader, though, and it's really in a longevity book. I would expect to see a something of, of your caliber to have addressed NED a little more comprehensively. Uh, it's really important for 500 coenzymes and the 500 enzymatic reactions in the body and really without 15 seconds you're dead. Uh, interestingly, it's my belief from reading a lot of literature on this, that I think it's probably one of the major reasons we drop dead of chronic diseases is because as when you get older, especially over 80, your NAD levels drop like 40 to 50 fold over they were when you were 23 to 30 years old. I mean, it's a dramatic and very serious decline. And if you can implement strategies to restore those, I think it's good. And you mentioned the oral ones, and I do agree. I'm not a big fan of the orals, even though I still take them myself. I don't take orals, I, I do a transmucosal delivery system. But I think what's being ignored is the ex pretty extensive literature of NAD plus itself as a supplement. This is something you cannot swallow. The NAD molecule, you can actually Put into your body, and there's a number of different delivery systems. It can be taken intravenously, subcutaneously, transdermally through a battery system. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm working with a lab myself uh, with Nady Brady indirectly, who is probably the NAD pioneer and expert in the world at this point. He's in New, New South Wales in Australia, and he's got the best lab for measuring it. So we're, we're doing some tests to measure this, the, the differences between the orals and, and the NAD itself. But the preliminary results look quite encouraging for just the NAD molecule as to helping restore biological levels and approaching the ones that you'd get when you're 20 or 30 years old.
Yeah, but I think you and I would both agree that currently, and I think even David Sinclair would agree, that uh, the cost, for instance, uh, for the general public, uh, at least in current you know, development, is, is pretty doggone expensive. Well, NADIV for sure is, and it's almost criminal that they have to charge so much. This is about $1,000 for a one gram IV. But right. these other delivery systems are, are significantly 90%, 95% less expensive. So it does be, I mean, we're looking at uh, costs in the ranges of $100 a month to augment levels, which I think is affordable for most people who are serious about these changes, especially if, uh, if it's a strategy that appears to be the most promising for at least getting us to the bridge. And I define the bridge as the age at which we normally would exhaust all our resources and die, even if we had an absolutely perfect diet, exercise, sleep program, and it couldn't be any better. And that, you know, most of us with that program will die at 120 or earlier. So there's virtually no one's going to live beyond that. So, but I think NAD is, will help us quite dramatically to get to that point. Well, Dave Asprey assures me that he's living to 180. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'm in agreement with Dave. And I, you know, I've been on his podcast a few times, and we've discussed this. And uh, but we're not going to get there without some other intervention. I asked this question to David last week: uh, what he thinks that intervention is going to be, and his answer was really quite profound. I think he's really one of the researchers that is uh, really leading the way. And there's others. He's certainly not the only one. But it essentially involves cellular reprogramming, where you're actually going in there and essentially editing the DNA and resetting the epigenetic clock, the methylation clock, the Horvath clock, you know, where you can essentially reprogram the cells to age zero. And uh, you know, that, that is the only way you're going to get past 120. There doesn't seem to be any other strategy that I've seen that's going to work. Yeah, I, I, you know, certainly I, there's obviously it's possible to live to 120 or 122. It's uh, humanly possible. Uh, it's unusual. Well, one of the things that was exciting in, in researching my book is that there are a number of people 105 years of age around the world who have vibrant health. And one of the things that was fascinating is that these people, their gut microbiome, number one, is very diverse. So as you know, my, my interest uh, through the years has been, well, why is the gut microbiome so interestingly similar in all these people? And I think the point I try to make in the book, since that is a manageable thing to do, is we're basically a condominium for our bugs. And the more we feed them what they want, and the more they will keep up the conditions of their condo. And so that's certainly what I'm going to do. And one of the things that's fascinating to me about fasting, evidence out of C. elegans, that cute little worm, shows that C. elegans ages and dies because of the breakdown in the intestinal barrier. Even its little bacteria eventually break down that barrier. So the thicker you can make your mucus layer, the happier you can make Ekermansia mucinophilia, the better. And fasting is one great way to do it. 
I think the fascinating thing about metformin, uh, which many longevity researchers take, uh, metformin, among other things, and I think its principal action is to increase the population of Acromancia mucinophilia. And so maybe it's not doing anything else crazy except making better bugs. Well, it's typically attributed to increase or activate AMPK. And actually, Sinclair takes that too, as many other people. I don't. I have a strong uh, prejudice against taking animatic pharmaceuticals, especially ones that I would hope to extend my lifespan. And I, yeah, and I don't, him, I don't take it. Let me just finish. I asked him last week, why he's taking it because there are pretty strong studies that show metformin is actually a mitochondrial poison that it actually goes in and, and uh, impairs quite dramatically complex one in the mitochondria and reduces significantly the amount of ATP that's produced. And his response was he thought it was hormetic and I disagree with him. Yeah, you know, I think all of us like the concept of hormesis. He, he goes into it extensively in all my books. I think there is a point for hormesis. And mm -hmm. again, all of us, you know, ask me when I'm 150 if it worked. Uh, you yeah, know. yeah. All right. So how, how old are you now? How old so are you now? I uh, will turn 69 in about a month and a half. So. Okay. And what do you, how do you think you're going to get to 150? And, I, and I'm disputing this. You know, I, I believe I will. But, I, but I'm wondering what you think at this point in time your strategy is going to be. Well, my strategy is, number one, I do absolutely positively think that, you know, time-restricted feeding is going to be one of the big ways I get there. For the last 13 years now, from January through June, I'm actually approaching June 1st, uh, during the week, I eat no breakfast, I eat lunch, I eat all my calories between a two-hour window, uh, between six and eight o'clock at night. Why did I choose that two-hour window? Well, if I was really smart, that would not be my two-hour window, but that's when my wife and I both get home from work, and so that works for both of us. If I was going to do it and had total control, I would... Uh, do it probably at lunch uh, as my two-hour window. So I do that. So on the weekends, I don't eat. I don't eat breakfast, uh, and I eat a salad for lunch, and then usually sh shellfish for dinner. So I do that for six months. Why six months? Because uh, that I think, and evidence would suggest that that would have been our limited uh, time period for limited access to food. Mm -hmm. We'll find out. Um, recently, I had- that's, that's not gonna get you to 150. No, but that's gonna be a piece of it. I do think that polyphenols are gonna, phenols at the appropriate time period are gonna get me to 150. You think polyphenols by himself? Uh, David Sinclair and I would probably say, I think, you're underestimating the power of poly. Well, I mean, they can also be used, in addition to activating the sirtuins, they can also be used for senolytic therapy, removal of senescent cells. Correct. Which and I think, yeah, and I think that's another huge strategy that we probably would have to have another entire podcast just to talk on. I think that zombie cells may be the final frontier on getting us past the 120 barrier. 
Well, you know, David and I have talked about him. He wasn't as convinced. He seemed to think it was this other reprogramming that, that held the, the key. But uh, just getting back to your eating window, and I, I would encourage you to consider this. One of the reasons, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, that eating late, as you certainly appreciate, is not the ideal, is because, Horrible. yeah, the, the primary metabolic reason, molecular biological, at least from my perspective, is that what it will do is you, you well, you know, in your case, it may not be this, the case because you're only eating windows. So you might be using those calories nearly immediately, but in most people, they're not going to be able to burn those calories as fuel, so they have to store it as energy. And in the process of storing it as energy, they create fatty acids. And guess what the biggest consumer of NADPH is? It's fatty acids. So when you eat late at night, you're lowering your NADPH levels, which is the last thing you'd want to do because your oxidative stress is going to go through the roof. And we know that increased oxidative stress is clearly one of the contributors to, to aging. Yeah, oh, I completely agree with you. And actually, in, in my book, I want people to have at least one day a week a brainwash day where they their last meal of the day is at 6 o'clock, preferably not eat a last meal of the day. Because um, Dale Bredesen, who you and I both know, the author of The End of Alzheimer's, uh, thinks and has pretty good evidence that we need to go through a brainwash cycle where our brain shrinks about 20 percent and we wash out amyloid and tau and other toxins out of our brain and you need an active period of blood flow to do that and i'm old enough to remember my mother would not let me go swimming for an hour after lunch because i'd get cramps and die and that's because that wise tale had a bit of truth to it, that all of our blood goes to our digestive tract after eating. And we need impressive blood flow more than normal to our brain during brainwashing. So uh, I absolutely think that at least once a week, people should either stop their last meal, even a snack, three to four hours before going to bed. because. Um, deep sleep occurs very early in the sleep cycle for most of us. And that's when this cleaning happens. I'll give you an interesting anecdote. Uh, last week, I did a 96-hour uh, fast. Mm -hmm. And um, because I'm, I'm approaching the end of my you know, time-restricted feeding periods, so I threw in a 96-hour fast last week. Uh, while maintaining an active clinical practice. But interestingly enough, my, my deep sleep during those four days of fasting was two, two and a half hours consistently. Um, that's interesting. Good job. Yeah. And again, it's anecdote, but... No, but that's a powerful anecdote. And you're, I'm assuming you're using the aura ring to make that assessment. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry to give you the finger, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, Which the is aura... Kind of, it's, it's the best technology out there that's currently available, but it's unquestionably flawed because it's only a correlative assessment. It's not measuring your brain waves. It's just making implications from your heart rate. And I'll give you one other thing. I, I have no relationship with these people. The WHOOP band. Yeah. Uh, the WHOOP band, interestingly, so far, I've only been using it for a couple of weeks, correlates 
really dead on with the aura ring on sleep cycles. They might be I, using the same algorithms. They probably are. I mean, it's, yeah. it's exactly. I think the whoop, whoop has green light, though, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they use a green light. Yeah, not a good idea. And, yeah, and this, yeah, and this uses an EKG. But, no, no, uh, no, it uses near-infrared. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, near-infrared, whereas the whoop is that. I didn't like the whoop. I used it for a week and sent it back. I said, uh, no thanks. I'm giving it a try. Interesting. But I thought the sleep cycle was fascinating. You may no. try the Dream headband, D-R-E-E-M. It's a um, little bit heavy and cumbersome, uh, a bit pricey, but it does, it actually measures your EEG. So, but it's just really uncomfortable to wear at night because the sensors dig into your skull and kind of ah. sleep, you know. But it's a lot more accurate than the Aura, that's for sure. And it gave me, it, that's what's I nice. got significantly higher levels when I, I returned that one too, because it's just, it's not a long-term solution. It's not very practical. Uh, well, but we so, digress. <laughs> yeah, we digress. And it's important digressions, though, you know, really from the foundational components. I think the big that we're both in strong agreement. And, you know, the only exception to your recommendations for your patients to have one night a week, I would, I would extend that and say, what, have one night a week where you're not eating the entire day. So, you're, you know, it's literally over 24 hours that you haven't eaten before you go to bed. And that will really wash out your brain. You know, once a week fasting will do miracles for your health. Yeah, but I think you and I, uh, and you've made a point of this uh, in your uh, emails that we really have to be very careful about uh, fasting. And you've done this in, in your excellent new book that we are so loaded with environmental toxins that mm -hmm. none of us were exposed to, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that we really have to be careful uh, yeah. because these toxins leave our fat cells. They're actually not all bad sitting there. Um, but once they're out, we just have horrible systems of getting rid of these. Yeah, like Ray Right, like Ray Wolford proved in Biosphere 2. Oh, there's no question. There's a lot of animal studies that prove it too, like the seals were go who go through regular periods where they're not eating and they're, they're harvested for whatever reason and do studies on them. And you can see their, their levels of these toxins are just skyrocketing in those phases. So, but you know, one of the things that fasting does is it increases NAD, NADPH. So yes, it, does help exactly. your it does help your detox systems from that perspective. But you do, you do have to have, be careful about binding and excreting it through effective alternative strategies like uh, near infrared sauna and other strategies. So, but you just, you know, I go into deep, great detail that in keto fast. So yeah, you do. It's, it's devil's in the details and there's plenty of details here you need to be aware of, but I just think, you know, anyone who's interested in living healthily to a hundred, I can't imagine them doing it with a high likelihood unless they're integrating many of these strategies. Well, I thought, uh, and I'm sure you have this book. If not, I'll get it to you that I, I reference all the time, The Longevity Paradox, this interesting Italian by the name of Luigi Carneros, who uh, wrote a, a treatise called uh, Living the Sober Life. And it has nothing to do with sobriety because he drank uh, 500 mLs of uh, red wine every day. Uh, but this is a guy who lived to 102. And Every decade, he documented uh, in his book what he was doing. And he probably, uh, when he was 50, his physicians, and this was in the 1500s, 
told him that, you know, he wasn't around long because of his gluttonous lifestyle. So he describes a calorie restricted diet. And he, in the 90, when he was 90, his family and friends said, you know, you're too skinny. And he was strong as an ox and felt great. They said, you know, you need to add some calories. And he actually lived to 102, um, which ties the longest living nutritionist who was Ansel Keys, interestingly. No. Yeah, many people aren't too thrilled with Ansel Keys, but it's hard to deny the the residents the, 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 the facts speak for themselves. He lived 102. That's a pretty darn good testimony that some of the strategies they had were pretty solid. Yeah, I, I think uh, he's been unfortunately vilified by the paleo community. Uh, he, is, he was not an anti-fat guy. He was an anti-animal saturated fat guy. Uh, but the guy lived on olive oil south yeah. of Naples uh, in his retirement. And yeah, his, his lifestyle in the older, elderly, his elderly years was certainly exemplary. But the problem is when he was a researcher, he accepted lots of funding from the sugar industry, which uh, <laughs> I think he is rightfully criticized for. Doing. That part, yes, I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate you writing the book and sharing with us your wisdom and uh, some of the strategies you developed to help us live healthy to 100. Well, I think that's what we're all interested in because, again, that's why the book's called The Longevity Paradox, because we want to, I think, all of us live healthily to at least 100, but what we see, you know, in our future doesn't look very good. And we have to make changes if, and you and I both know that our entire healthcare system will crumble uh, if we don't make some fundamental changes soon. Seems to be inevitable, <laughs> but then I don't think it's just the whole healthcare system. It may be the whole, whole <laughs> kit and caboodle that collapses because it's they're not just picking on healthcare. That ha- happens to be a particularly pernicious one, consuming almost nearly a quarter of the GDP, but uh, three plus trillion dollars a year. That's a lot of money. That's just the majority, the absolute majority of it just being wasted, absolutely wasted. But anyway, that's another discussion. That's That's right. We'll we'll talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And we'll, uh, we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Okay.